0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 17, The End. A year on from Chancellor Merkel's big decision, Politicians, media stars, celebrities, and others continued to insist that Europe must continue to take in the world's migrants. Those people, including the general public, who continued to question this policy were repeatedly dismissed as cold-hearted and probably racist. And so, even a year after the situation in Europe was agreed to be a catastrophe, the naval patrols in the southern Mediterranean were continuing to pick up people in their thousands. Indeed. According to the EU's own agencies, the number of migrants arriving into Italy in July 2016 was 12% up on the numbers in July 2015. A year on from what was meant to be the peak, more than 10,000 people were picked up off the North African coast in just 48 hours. Whenever the media did report these events, they described the migrants as being saved or rescued from the Mediterranean. Most of the time, the European vessels simply went ever nearer to the North African shore and picked people up from the boats they had been pushed off in not many minutes earlier. But the implication was really that they were being saved or rescued from terrible situations that had caused them to set out on the boats in the first place. And as before, none of the details mattered. Among the absent details was the fact that the flows of migrants into Italy hardly included any Syrians from the Civil War. Instead, they were nearly all young sub-Saharan African men. Another point which could have been of some interest was that whatever they were fleeing from was quite possibly no worse than what hundreds of millions of others might wish to flee from in the months and years ahead. Once the migrants had been saved, the benevolent Europeans who called for this policy to continue lost interest in their newest arrivals. When the 2015 crisis was at its height, many individuals in Britain from the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party to the Labour Party's Shadow Home Secretary, with numerous actors and rock stars in between, had said they would be happy to take in a refugee family. More than a year later, not one of these people had actually done so. As with the generosity and benevolence throughout the crisis, it was easy to expect others to be benevolent on your own behalf once you had signaled that you were on the side of the Earth's poor and oppressed the consequences of your benevolence could easily be left to others. The actual details remaining as troubling or remained as troubling and badly arranged as ever. In September of 2016, a month as after I was last on Lesbos, migrants inside Mariah burnt the camp down. The spark could have been almost anything. People had been left there for almost half a year as the other European nations that still insisted on the importance of the rescue missions closed their borders and left Greece to deal with the consequences of the rescue. Rumors had been flying around the camp's occupants of, Im- of an imminent repatriation to Turkey. Others said that the riots had led to the torching of the camp were due to the argument over the food queues. It could have been because of this or the inter-ethnic violence that simmered. A video taken of the camp burning down includes shouts to Allah. The week after Mariah was burnt down, I was in Germany again. Everywhere the consequences of the previous year's decision by the chancellor were visible. The television schedules included a stand-up comedy show starring migrants who entertained a small audience of Germans for the cameras. The migrants were given a human face to the flow, and their audiences were desperately leaning in to love the experience. But... TV stardom was not the reality for the overwhelming number of newcomers. In the basement of one evangelical Lutheran church in the suburbs of Berlin, I found 14 refugees living on bunk beds. All male and in their 20s, primarily from Iran, they had come in 2015. One admitted to paying $1,200 U.S. to cross the sea to Greece and had first made his way to Norway but did not like it there. These men said they had converted to Christianity, which was why the church was giving them shelter. Although their claim might have been sincere, the Christian conversion business had also become a well-known racket by this point. To claim conversion to Christianity almost ensured an asylum claim would be approved. In the Bundestag, I had the opportunity to speak with a member of parliament who was a major supporter of Chancellor Merkel and her stand throughout the crisis. He presented the issue as a solely bureaucratic one. The lack of housing, for instance, was not a catastrophe but a task. How might the country ensure better integration? The migrants currently get 60 hours of courses on German values. The MP thought this perhaps should be increased to 100 hours. Most striking, as I had heard in Germany for years, was his belief that German citizens were the ones who were the problem. Those concerned with a change in the area, he said, "...spent too much time on blogs and not enough time in reality." When asked about the criminal activities of migrants, he unloaded himself of his opinion that, quote, the refugees are less criminal than the average German inhabitant, end quote. Hmm. As for taking in one million people a year, it was, the MP said, not a big deal. Imagine, he said at one point, that there were 81 people sitting in this room and there was a knock on the door. It turns out to be someone telling us that if he remains in the corridor, he will be killed. What would we do? And of course we let him in. And what would you do, I wonder, if after letting an 82nd person into the room, there comes a knock at the door once again? Must the 83rd person also be let in? Certainly, the MP says. There seems to be no point at which the door cannot continue to be opened, so we changed tack. In 2015, Germany gave priority to the asylum claims of Syrians. Why, I asked, putting the point that the Afghans on Lesbos had put to me, should the Syrians be given priority? Why should Germany not also make a priority of bringing Afghans into Germany? And what of the others? There was no doubt that the situation in Eritrea and other countries in Africa was bad. What about the people I had met from the Far East, like Burma and Bangladesh and elsewhere? Why should Germany not be making a priority of bringing these people in too? The MP was getting exasperated with what he clearly thought to be a theoretical point. This situation, he insisted, was not a real one and so required no response. Besides, people were not coming to Germany in these numbers anymore, so it was not necessary to consider such scenarios. This was, I must admit, a lightning bolt moment throughout all my travels. For this German MP speaking in late 2016 must have known what anybody reading a newspaper must know which is that the flow of migrants has not slowed because the need had slowed. It had slowed because the governments of Europe and the government of Germany in particular had changed the facts on the ground. If there was a reason why in 2016 the numbers had fallen by several hundred thousand from the year before, it was because of two things. Firstly, because of the deal that the EU, led by the German government, made with the Turkish government earlier in the year, paying the Turks to keep migrants inside their country, And preventing boats from setting off for Greece. And secondly, because, quietly in some cases but more noisily in others, the borders of Europe had gone back up. Not all of these decisions had been discouraged by the Germans. The enforcement of the Macedonian border was particularly helpful for the German government, creating a bottleneck of migrants who had arrived in Greece, but ensuring that they did not have the opportunity to flow up in such numbers as the year before to Germany or beyond. Unsatisfied with his casuistry, I pushed my MP. He must know, and his colleagues must know, that the reason why the flow had diminished was because of these two factors. If Germany really did care as much as it claimed about all the oppressed, beleaguered, and war-torn of the world, then there were obvious solutions to their plight. Germany did not need to keep making Greece pay the price. Why did Germany not lay on a fleet of airplanes to bring islands from the Greek islands and fly them straight into Berlin? If the dominant country in Europe really did abhor the re-erection of borders, as it officially claimed to do, then it should not permit those borders to be a hindrance to their humanitarian exercise. Massive numbers of chartered flights from the extremities of Europe to its heart were clearly the answer. But my interlocutor would not grant this, and that is where the realization struck that even these people, even the most pro-Merkel, pro-migrant MPs, had their snapping point. And here we were right at the edge of it. He was willing to plead the plight of all migrants, also to condemn all the borders, and simultaneously be willing to pretend that the flow had slowed of its own volition. This was the way in which his conscience and his survival instinct had found room for an agreement. By pretending that the migrants simply weren't coming, whilst supporting a policy that had stopped them from coming, it was possible to remain a humanitarian and remain in power. He had made a pact. With himself that many other Germans were also beginning to make. News from Germany strangely no longer travels very far. The cost of foreign reporting, even of having a single correspondent full-time in another European city is one explanation, as is an apparently diminishing public appetite for news rather than gossip and entertainment. Elections are still covered, of course, as are unavoidably huge events. But in a continent that likes to pretend it is wholly interconnected, The real news of what is going on rarely travels from one country to another. Yet, as anybody who knows Germany will know, any normal day's news that rarely travels further from the German language press reveals a country teetering ever nearer to disaster. A single day's news in September of 2016 might suffice. The front pages, like the rolling news channel, covered the firebombing of a mosque in Dresden. No longer an uncommon event, no one had been injured, and the mosque building had not been badly damaged. Bad as it still is, this is the sort of story the media know how to deal with. It remains suggestive of the results of bigotry of any kind, and anti-migrant bigotry in particular. Inside, and given far less coverage, are, now, are other now even more routine stories. There had been violent clashes in a small village between a gang of German bikers and a gang of migrants. The migrants had overwhelmed the biker gang before the police got there serious violence was narrowly averted. Another story related, events at an asylum center the day before. On the evening of September 27th, a migrant called police from a Berlin center saying that he had seen another migrant abusing a child in some bushes. Three policemen arrived to find a 27-year-old Pakistani man still in some bushes where he was raping a six-year-old, six-year-old Iraqi girl. One of the policemen began to take the girl away as the others handcuffed the Pakistani man and began to put him in the back of their police car. As they did, so, the abused girl's father, a 29-year-old Iraqi, came running out of the asylum center towards the car, holding a knife. The police shouted stop, but clearly intent on revenge, he would not. The policemen shot the father dead. Articles covering this occurrence raised the bureaucratic question of whether the police had acted inappropriately. But none noted that these stories of lives irre- irrevocably and haphazardly changed now constituted just another average day in the new Germany. Not that this new Germany was in a continent unrecognizable from the old. That same month of September, ahead of the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, a new survey of attitudes among European Jews was released. The work, carried out by two Jewish organizations, surveyed attitudes in Jewish communities from Britain to the Ukraine. It found that despite increased security measures at synagogues across the continent, 70% of European Jews said they would avoid attending synagogue. In 2016, fear of anti-Semitism and terror attacks would keep a majority of the continent's Jews away from practicing their own faith. In September, the German public finally had an opportunity to vent their feelings about what their chancellor had done to their country. Voters in Berlin gave the CDU the lowest electoral results in the capital, winning just 17.5% of the vote. Meanwhile, the AFD entered the, cap- the state capital's parliament for the first time after receiving a 14.1% share of the vote. This meant that the new party was represented in most of the country's regions. The AFD's particularly strong showing in the former East Germany tended to be ascribed to the comparatively lower socioeconomic conditions there. Other factors, such as the possibility that like the rest of Eastern Germany, its inhabitants remembered something their Western compatriots had forgotten, were rarely even discussed in the media at large. What the Chancellor had done was somehow deemed to be right, and anyone who thought otherwise, including the public, must have some strange temporary reason for not yet understanding this. These results did, however, manage to wrest a rare concession from the former East Germany's most famous daughter. That month, she made what was hailed across the world as a mea culpa. In fact, the words she used after her party's collapse in Berlin were some way short of that. Quote, If I could, I would rewind time by many, many years, Merkel said, so that I could better prepare myself and the whole government and all those in positions of responsibility for the situation that caught us unprepared in the late summer of 2015, end quote. But, of course the situation had not caught them unprepared. Germany, like every other European country, had been experiencing mass immigration for years. It had been experiencing for decades a breakdown of border controls, a laxness in repatriations of failed asylum seekers, and a failure, failure to integrate new arrivals so much so that Merkel herself conceded as much in 2010. If the multiculturalism-has-failed speech had been anything other than words, it should have given Germany a head start in preparing for the integration tsunami that would come five years later. But it didn't, because it had indeed been only words. In September of 2016, Merkel did concede that her phrase from the year before, Wir schaffen das, or we can do this, was a simple slogan and almost an empty formula, one that had significantly underestimated the scale of the challenge. But this was also wordplay, as one of her own MP colleagues in the CDU admitted to the press. This MP insisted that, quote, the government has been on the right track with its policies for some time now, but our communication must be better. The chancellor seems now to have accepted this, end quote. The mia culpa claim was merely electorally useful for the CDU, but there was no serious remorse for what had been imposed on the country. For what Merkel also said at the same press conference, and which was less widely quoted, was that it had been absolutely right by her to take in more than one million migrants of the year before. Nevertheless, she continued, quote, we have learned from history. Nobody, including me, wants a repeat of this situation, end quote. Yet it seemed as though the only lessons Germany had learned from history were the usual ones, and those from eight decades before. On the eve of the AFD's success in the Berlin elections, the mayor of Berlin, Michael Müller, from the left-wing SDP, warned that a double-digit result for the AFD would be, quote, be seen around the world as a sign of the return of the right-wing and the Nazis in Germany, end quote. Everywhere else in Europe, the same warning kept being issued from every direction after every event. In the same month as the regional elections in Germany, one year after Germany had opened its doors, the British government announced that it was going to have to build a further security wall in Calais, near to the large migrant camp there. The one kilometer wall was designed to further protect the entry point to Britain, specifically to prevent migrants from trying to climb onto lorries passing on their way to the United Kingdom. Responding to this proposal, the French senator and vice chair of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, Nathalie Gallet, said, It reminds me of the wall they built around the Warsaw Ghetto in World War II. Behind the perennial slur that borders were associated with Nazis came the familiar presumption that borders were also part of history. Ms. Gallet explained, Putting up walls has happened throughout history, but eventually people find a ways around them or they fail. Look at the Great Wall of China. Now tourists walk on it and take pictures End quote. In Britain, the issue of Calais remained the foremost one in discussion. Given that there were fewer than 6500 people in the camp most of the time, a solution to Calais always seemed straightforward. All that was needed, activists and politicians from all sides tried to argue, was a one-time generous offer and the camp could be cleared. This was Europe's big failing in microcosm. If only these people could be admitted to the UK, then the problem would be solved, or so it seemed. Rarely was any thought given to the fact that, after the camp was emptied, it would simply refill again. For 6,500 people was an average day's migration into Italy alone. In the meantime, while the British and French governments argued over who was responsible for the current situation in Calais, both day and night Migrants threw missiles into the motor cars, into the motorways and at cars, trucks, and lorries, heading into Britain, in the hopes that the vehicles would stop and they could climb aboard as stowaways for the journey across the Channel. Everything about the discussions over Calais, like everything else for decades, was short sighted and short term. When the British government agreed to take in a certain number of unaccompanied child migrants from the camp, photographs of the young arrivals appeared in the newspapers. Some of the children looked distinctly adult. Some are in their 30s. One backbench Tory MP, David Davies, pointed this out and suggested the use of dental tests. The entire media and political class descended upon him. Television hosts used the opportunity to invite Davies onto their show and shout him down. Other MPs said they were disgusted to sit on the same parliaments as him. Suddenly, the debate shifted onto whether it was racist to check people's teeth. An age test used across the continent was suddenly condemned as unimaginably barbaric. The consensus remained that the good thing to do was to invite all migrants in. The bad thing was to suggest any limitations on their numbers, or even the enforcement of the laws already in place. As so often in the past, the government weighed up the pros and cons of holding the line and decided not to hold it. For, of course, the migrants who ended up in Calais trying to break into Britain had already broken all the EU's laws trying to get there. They had not applied for asylum in their first country of entry, had not abided by the Dublin Treaty, but pushed on through up to the north of France. In taking them in, the British government thought it was doing a good deed. In fact, it was rewarding the people who had broken the most rules and leapfrogged over all other more deserving migrants. This was a precedent that had been set for years, but it was an unwise precedent nonetheless. Everywhere it remained the same story. To be on the side of the incomers was to be on the side of angels. To speak for the people of Europe was to be on the side of the devil. And all the time, there existed that strange assumption that Europe was simply letting just one more person into the room. Whether that person was genuinely about to be killed in the corridor became immaterial if he was cold poor or just worse off there than the people inside the room he too had the right to come in europe could no longer be bothered to turn anyone away and so the door remained open to anyone who wanted to walk right through it thank you for watching please like subscribe and visit my channel for more exciting content